Well, let's pray. Again, Lord, I just thank you for this time and this opportunity to look into your word. And so, God, you've given this moment. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for providing this day. And as we look at your word, as always, Lord, will we be doers of your word, not simply hearers. And so we maybe walk out these doors knowing how to apply your word in a mighty way. And uh, Lord, we give you this time. We give you our, our hearts. May we put away distractions, God, and may we put away those things that are tugging and pulling on us and just look to you in this moment, Lord. Lord, you have all the answers to this life. And so as we again look at your word, continue to reveal your voice to us. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. This morning we're going to take a look at a passage of God's Word that reminds us that we have a daily decision what to do with our time that is given us. Stewardship is all over the Bible. We're to be stewards with our time and our energy and our resources. I think in some ways time is really the most valuable resource that we have. One of my favorite movies to watch with my older kids is Lord of the Rings. It's hard to believe that that the first Lord of the Rings is over 20 years now. So the Fellowship of the Ring. Have you guys seen that movie? Do you know that movie? Yeah, yeah, classic. Or maybe you've read the book or the books. But one of my favorite scenes in Lord of the Rings, again, the Fellowship of the Ring, is where Gandalf and Frodo are having this conversation. And Frodo receives this ring. And in many ways, this ring is a great burden to Frodo because Frodo's got to return it from the place that it was that originated. And here's this, this young man that's got this incredibly, incredibly challenging task ahead of him. And Frodo says this. He says this to Gandalf. He says, I wish this wouldn't have happened in my time. And he says, I wish I wouldn't have had this burden. And Gandalf says, he says back, he says, it's not for us to decide the details of our journey. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that has given us. Interesting. Again, he says, it's not the details we get to determine. It's what we get to do with the time that we've been given us. And these words are not true because they're from Tolkien or from a famous movie or a, a, a book, of course, but these are actually words and it's a truth from God's Word. Now, the Bible has a whole lot to say again about being a steward with the time that we've been given on this earth. I don't need to tell you guys that, that life is short, isn't it? Life is short. I think about life in kind of 20-year increments, and, and uh, I'm a little over halfway there. But you think about you know, life expectancy is, is about 80 years old, and you break life up into these 20-year increments, and it's pretty short. The, the Dutch bakery this week, they had a, you probably saw their reader board, their sandwich board on the road. It said, life is short, eat dessert first. I thought, yeah, amen, yeah. We don't have time to get into the, the vegetables, right? So my kids are probably going to bust me on that one, I'm sure, you know. But, you know, I, I, I feel like a high schooler inside still a little bit, you know. And maybe, maybe that never really changes, but it's hard to believe that I have a high schooler now, which is, which is pretty wild. And so that's just a, another reminder that life is pretty short. And, uh, you know, the average person lives 29,200 days. And it sounds like a lot of days, but really when your average year is, or your year is 365 days, right, it goes pretty quickly. So the reality is, is that life is pretty short. 
And so we as followers of Jesus have to be ever intentional about how we use our time, our energy, our resources. You know, Jesus says to use, or he says to invest your your talents and the resources you've been given. Jesus also says it'll be good for the servant to be found doing the master's work when the master returns. Paul, Paul says, watch how you live and make the most of every opportunity that you've been given. So this morning, we're going to look at a passage from Peter, and Peter writes to the church, and right out of the gates, he says, we have limited time. And so our passage this morning is, is again, Peter reminding us that we have limited time really to walk this earth. So therefore, we must decide how we're going to live each and every moment. Whether we have days, whether we have years or decades left, I believe our time is short. So if you brought your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. I'm going to read from the NIV this morning. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. Verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert, clear-minded, and self-controlled so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace and its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it through the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To Him be the glory and power forever. Amen. So nearly 2,000 years ago, we have Peter writing to the church of the first century, and right out of the gates he says what? He says, the end is near. But yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, worshiping Jesus in 2022. You know, this morning's morning's passage is really intended to get our attention. It certainly got my attention, and I was preparing and writing and reading this week. This phrase, the end is near. There is a certain imminent sense of Jesus' return that I think think is... is, um, True, right out of the gates, again in our passage, that Peter says these, the end is near. And so Peter again writes this text to the first century church and says, practice Christ-likeness with, which, with whatever time that we have left, may we be Jesus. Would we practice Christ-likeness in whatever time we have left, whether that's days, months, years, or decades, we can be a steward with the time and the resources that we have. And and Peter is saying, may we live for one purpose and one purpose only, right? And so the so-called end that Peter is referring to is Jesus' second coming. We know that is happening. Scripture tells us that that is a verifiable truth from the Bible that is happening. Jesus will return. Jesus says, I will return in the same way that I ascend into heaven. It will be visible and it will happen. 
And again, he promises to return and take the church with him. You know, he promised to return, take us with him. And so Peter, again, is, is writing to the church saying the end is near. But yet here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, still worshiping Jesus. You know, Peter was present when Jesus said, I will return before this generation comes to an end. Interesting, right? So Jesus said that to his disciples. He says, I'm going to come back and I will return before this generation comes to an end. There was this great anticipation of Jesus' return. The disciples thought it was going to be during their lifetime, right? Because that's what, that's what Jesus said. He said, I will return before this generation comes to an end. And Jesus also says, I'll come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the hour when I return, but only God the Father. So nobody knows the day or the hour, only, only for the Father to know. But so the last 2,000 years, as you know, there's been a great anticipation of Jesus' return. It will happen. And again, Peter wrote this letter to, to the first century church. In his introduction, he says, this is to God's elect people the church that was scattered throughout all the region, the Israelites, the Hebrews. It even says this. This is interesting. He calls them strangers in the world. Peter addresses the, the church and calls them strangers. Does it feel like we're strangers in this world sometimes? It certainly does to me. So here we are in 2022, and we live somewhere in between this reality where, again, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour when I'm going to come back. But Peter says, the end is near. So here we have really what is a 2,000-year-old conversation. You know, you may even see the bumper stickers or maybe coffee mugs or shirts that say, the end is near. That's something that people have been you know, using this, this phrase for a long, long time. You know, believers, have, they've sold their homes. They have liquidated their retirements and checking accounts for this great anticipation when they... When they you know, you have people who claim to be prophets and will identify a particular day and year that Jesus is going to return, this is it. But what's the Bible say? No man knows that hour or the day, right? Well, that's only for the Father to know. But we know, as Peter says, he says, Behold, the end is near. So while this morning we're not here to predict a date or predict a time, but my conviction is that I think Jesus could return any day. While we live in this place of great anticipation, as I look at the signs, as I look at Scripture, and as I look at our world and the tribulations and the, the challenges and the birth pains and all these things that I see happening, I, I believe that Jesus is returning sooner than later. And there's a, there's a phrase in theology which I've always appreciated. It's called, already not yet. Maybe you guys have heard that phrase, but it's, it's already not yet that Jesus has already ascended into heaven, but he has not yet returned. And in some way we live in this place, this, um, this place of being, being sojourners as we, as we pass through this world where it's already, but not yet. And I think the same thing is, uh, I imagine, is, as you turn the news on or if you're paying attention, that it's, it's hard to ignore the signs, right? And, and again, my conviction is, is that Jesus is going to return sooner than later. And I believe that truth, or I believe that reality should greatly impact how we live each and every day, each and every moment in this life, right? In Matthew 24, Jesus says, look at the signs. 
He even uses the phrase, their birth pains. Nation against nation, wars, rumors of wars, increasing persecution of the church. It would be a great falling away, is what Jesus speaks to, where people that know Jesus or claim to have known Jesus walk away from their faith. The lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. Jesus also says that as well. And so as I look at and interpret the signs and all this evidence, I believe, I believe Jesus is returning sooner than later. And again, you know, Peter's words to the church are really for us, for a response. What do we do with that information, right? We're not here to know more or to be puffed up and gain more knowledge, right? We're here to decipher God's Word. And God's Word impacts how we live not only inside these walls, but as we go out from here, right? And so Peter's words are designed this morning to get a response. If the end is near, what do we do with that information? And so, again, the Bible tells us to be a steward with the time that we've been given. If you're, if you're like me at all, sometimes you can look over your shoulder and you look in the past and you go, man, if I just would have been a better steward or maybe I would have been a, made a better decision here or there. And that's not the point this morning of our passage. The point is that we would, live, we would live for Jesus today and then tomorrow, not looking over our past, not, le- not letting guilt or shame or what we haven't done get in the way. But our passage this morning is to impact how we live from this moment forward. What are we going to do with this? If the end is near, how are we living as if Jesus could return tomorrow? So I want to look at four points from our passage this morning that impacts how we live for Jesus in whatever time that we have left. I want to look at four points that impacts how we might live for Jesus in whatever time that we have left on this earth. In verse 7, Peter comes out and he says, Jesus wants his followers to have a singular focus. And it's the second part of verse 7, if you have your Bibles open still, that Peter says to be alert, to be clear-minded, to practice self-control. And there are two categories in this life, right? The things of God and the things of man, in essence. So here Peter is saying you have an opportunity to have a singular focus, to be alert, clear-minded, to practice self-control. We, again, we have distraction coming at us all day long. Technology, marketing, all these things, the news, social media. I read a stat recently that the average adult, regardless of the age, spends two hours a day on social media. Could, could be a good thing. I don't know. Maybe you're connecting with friends or family or you know, maybe sharing Jesus with someone. I, I don't know. But in many ways, that's a distraction taking away from our singular focus, I think, for most people, right? So the the prince of confusion, Satan, I think he's clouded our minds. He's the father of lies. He's allowed distraction or creating distraction so that we would be occupied in anything other than Jesus. And Peter says to be alert, clear-minded, to practice self-control, to be singular-minded. So if if our minds are filled with clutter... We can't discern God's voice when He does speak, right? 
We can't entertain the voice of the world or the voice of distraction and also the voice of God at the same time. Can't do it. They can't inhabit the same space. So Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind not on earthly things, but on things above. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, is what Paul tells us. That's got to be an intentional daily decision. Take every thought captive, right? I can have all kinds of thoughts come in, but the reality is I'm going to be taking it captive. I don't have to entertain those thoughts, right? There's a difference between entertaining something and something just kind of passing by, right? If I was an athlete or a, a, if I was training or if I was a runner or if I wanted to be a professional musician or a proficient musician, it takes about 10,000 hours to be proficient at something, whatever that might be. So whether it's athlete, musician, these are just, these are just some of the stats that are out there that takes about 10,000 hours. So I've got to be very intentional. I've got to practice single-mindedness, right? I've got to practice putting away distractions. I've got to practice spending time listening to the Lord, talking to the Lord. It doesn't, often this doesn't happen automatically. It's a, it's a habit. It's a practice. There's a discipline attached to that, right? That's really the best term for that is it's a discipline. I've got to work at it. If I want to be a man that's better at sitting before the Lord and quiet and listening to Him, I've got to put the time and the energy into it. But it's hard to do, right? if my mind is filled with the things of this world. And so Peter says, be single-minded, alert, clear-minded, to practice self-control. If you have a singular focus, may that focus be on Jesus. And and what happens is when we are not clear-minded, we are not sober, we are not alert, we are not self-controlled, again, the problem is that we can't discern God's will, right? We can't have our faces in our phones or on our computers all day long and also listen to the voice of God simultaneously. Maybe God can speak, right, through a verse or a passage or some worship music or something in those, in those moments. But at the same time, the distraction inhibits your ability to listen to the voice of God. So Peter reminds us that to be focused on Jesus, not only can you discern God's voice, but Peter also says, so that you may pray or desire to pray, is what Peter says. And, and again, one of the ways that, that is, as Peter reminds us, we discern God will, God's will is to talk to Jesus, right? I think prayer in some way is kind of a, uh, it's something that we, it's kind of an afterthought for many people with, within the church walls. It really is. When I try everything else, I'll try all, all the other alternatives, and I'll try to do it myself, oh, I guess I better pray. It feels like that sometimes, like, like prayer is often an afterthought. I'll try to do it, and I'll, I'll try to work my way out of it, but if I can't, uh, I, guess, I, I guess I better pray, right? And actually, the inverse is true, that prayer is the first thing that we need to go to and do in times of trouble, times of challenge or heartache. We did that this morning. We presented a request to the Lord, right? So if we're not singularly focused on the things of Jesus... We won't desire to pray, nor will we get, be in a, in, a, in a place, an opportunity where we can hear the Lord's voice in the first place because we're so distracted. Again, in another translation, Peter says to be sober-minded. Interesting, to stay alert. I know in my own life that 
Um, there are things in my own life that I think could be inherently good things, I would say, but also inhibits my ability to be singularly minded. Have you guys been watching The Chosen at all? Anybody watching The Chosen? Yeah, series about Jesus and his disciples. Um, good thing, right? I love worship music, so I, I spend a whole lot of time at home. I've got worship music playing and going. I'm in the car. I'm listening to worship music. Those are all good things, right? I think. But at the same time, some of those distractions, some of that noise can inhibit my ability to hear from Jesus, right? And so in those times that I turn the radio off or I'm out, you know, maybe sitting in quiet or listening to the Lord, there's a whole lot greater likelihood that I'm going to hear him when I put away the distraction and the noise, right? So Peter reminds us to be singular in our focus, to be alert, to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled. So even some of those things that are seemingly good can be a distraction at times. Verse 8 says this. is The second point this morning. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So Jesus, living for Jesus requires loving others even when it's not easy. It's easy to love those that love us, right? But living for Jesus requires loving others even when it's not easy. And Peter reminds us this morning, he says this, he said, if you can do one thing with your time and your energy, it's to love those who God loves. And who does God love? God loves everybody, right? Not just the lovable, not just those that love us, but God loves everyone. And Peter says, this isn't just a half-hearted love or some kind of faint love. Peter says to love deeply. That's a totally different kind of love, isn't it? To love deeply. And again, if, if we can do nothing else with our time and our energy is to love our neighbor, right? Jesus, or God's Word says to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. If we could do one thing, that's it. And Peter affirms to the church, he says the same thing. The two most central commands. And Jesus says that love will be the test as to whether you are following me wholeheartedly or not. So Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I will know you. They will know you by your love for one another. Interesting. And that's precisely what Peter is affirming in our passage. And as you know, loving is not easy, right? It's real easy to talk about. It's real easy to say, man, I'm, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to love my wife or my kids or my family. But it's a whole lot more difficult to do, right? To demonstrate Christ-like love is not always easy. A real hard thing to say, or hard thing to do, but an easy thing to say. And it's even more difficult to love those that we have division with, right? Or political division, or people that maybe don't believe the same things that we believe, or maybe look like us, or smell like us, or whatever it might be. Maybe there's, maybe you're a Cougar fan, you got some Huskies in your family. Maybe you drive a Ford, and your wife drives a Chevy. Ooh. 
now or that's the that's division right there. So it's a whole lot more difficult to, to love those who are different. Again, Jesus doesn't say hey, to simply just love those who love you, right? He says, love your enemy. Even the pagans love those who love us, right? And so it's much more difficult to love those who we might have division or conflict with. You know, Peter was the same guy in uh, who, who asked Jesus in Matthew 18:22, "Well, how many times do I forgive Jesus? How many times do I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven? I think I often wonder if Peter was like setting this real high standard like. And, and Jesus says, "No, what do you say? He says, 77 times." And while Jesus used the number of perfection, it really is infinite, right? There's no end to our forgiveness. It's, it's, it's an it's a infinite number. There is no limit to the forgiveness. So I think, you know, Peter chose to include this part of our, of our passage because I'm sure Peter remembered the forgiveness that he received from Jesus, right? You know, Jesus denied, or Peter denied Jesus three times and he was reinstated. You know, Jesus forgave Peter, so Peter had a great understanding of, of God's forgiveness. He experienced it firsthand. Again, he was the same man who denied Jesus, but was forgiven. And so Peter, I believe, is reminding us to extend that great forgiveness to others. Love others. It covers a multitude of sins. All sins, big sins, small sins, any sin. Forgiveness. And if like Peter wrote, Peter again, he said the end is near. We cannot live in unforgiveness. We cannot live in anger. We cannot live in resentment. These things that are so easy to carry around, right? We cannot live with that. That's damaging emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, and sometimes physically. So Peter says, Love covers a multitude of sins. I've, I've told this uh, story many times, but um, my family's probably tired of hearing it, but I, I loved basketball when I was in high school. I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player way before, I mean, way after I should have thought that because my, my stats were usually four fouls and two points. Every game, my, my parents can attest to that. I'd blow up at somebody or get mad or I'd push them I and mean, just not good stuff. I'd get frustrated. And so, um, but here I was, yeah, four fouls, two points, and somehow I was going to make it to the NBA. So, uh, but I was way too old to be thinking about this. I'm not sure what happened. But, but anyway, I loved basketball. And I had, this, I had this high school basketball coach that I'm not even sure what to say about this guy. You know, he thought he could, he thought he, a, a good motivator would be to uh, yell at everybody. He was kind of like Bobby Knight a little bit. He was my version of Bobby Knight. You guys know him at all? You know, Bobby Knight would throw chairs and he would yell at the, you know, players. And he thought he could motivate them by really just, you know, getting in their grill and getting angry. And so this guy was just kind of a, just not a very nice man. And so, you know, here I had this great dream of, I love basketball. But I had a jerk as a coach. And so... There were many, there were many, you know, months and even years. I just lived with like, I'm mad at that dude. I'm just, I'm just living in unforgiveness. Like, I want, I want to get him. And and what, you know, what I realized over time is number one, that's not really a, a godly response, right? But 
but I couldn't carry around this, this unforgiveness and this bitterness and resentment and anger, right? So, so love covers a multitude of sins, right? And I've got to, I've got to work. I've got to practice that, loving that man. Probably be fine today if I saw him. It's been you know many many years, of course, but but sometimes love doesn't come easy, right? You got to work at it. You got to practice it, and that's what Peter says. He says that we've got to work at practicing love because it covers over the sins of others. You know, and the, and the you know enemy, the enemy, you know Satan, he's the enemy of our hearts and our souls, and. He desires that we would walk away from loving each other, right? He would love to have us throw in a towel in our relationships or our marriages or our families or friends or whatever because he wants to seek, kill, and destroy. He would love to divide, right? That's, that's part of why I think this church has struggled the last couple of years. We stopped loving each other and we put our eyes on the offense, did we not? I think we took our eyes off of Jesus and we put our eyes on the hurts, put our eyes on what someone maybe said to us or put our eyes on our feelings. I think the enemy, Satan, he's used this as a great opportunity to divide God's people. I think as a world we became way more offendable than either any other time in history, right? And it's hard not to offend someone. Somebody's offended by something every day. It's ridiculous. I can no longer say, oh, I'm a man. Oh, that's going to offend somebody. Right? It's ridiculous. So the world just became easily offendable. We took our eyes off Jesus and on the offense, right? And in the face of being sinned against, if we try and manufacture Christ-likeness, right, if we try to do it ourselves, we're going to fail every time. Loving others only comes from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be supernatural grace. You know, if we're not willing to yield our hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot make ourselves simply love others or those who have sinned against us, right? It's not natural. It's got to be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, helping us to work on loving those, maybe who have sinned against us. And each day, if I'm not praying... And asking the Holy Spirit to give me love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we get in big trouble. This is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, exercising all those things. In verse 9, Peter says, Living for Jesus means living open-handed with God's blessings. Living for Jesus means living open, open-handed with God's blessing. If you look back in your Bibles there real quickly here. So Peter changes gears a little bit in verse 9 and he says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling is what Peter says. I've met plenty of people who said, who say hospitality is not their thing. Maybe you kind of feel that too. I'm not really sure hospitality is my thing, right? I get it. But according to Peter, all of God's people, they'll offer some form of hospitality. So that could be caring for someone. It could be opening your home or opening the church, of course. 
making them feel welcome, like a brother or a sister, again, right here inside these walls. And it very well might mean opening your home. You know, Peter wrote this to the church when there were very limited hotels or motels or places to stay, and quite frankly, it was pretty dangerous. You know, so Jesus tells the disciples, and they went out, and they stayed in people's homes. They went from home to home. They didn't go to hotels or stay in the bed and breakfast or anything, right? So, so Peter is also saying the same thing, practicing hospitality, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Grumbling. And we don't really typically offer up our homes, right? I, I get that. I understand that. In some ways, we live in a, a very different culture, a different you know, place in, in life that, um, you know, I think if you put a sandwich board up and said, hey, free food and free shelter, that would be kind of unique. You could certainly do that. But in some ways, that wouldn't be wise, would it? I don't know if that would, just, I don't know if that would be wise. But what a reminder for us to be practicing hospitality in some form without grumbling. And the key word is grumbling. I think sometimes we give, but we can attach something to that giving, right? So I've had plenty of experiences where I felt God telling me to give something to someone, but I wanted to somehow control the response on the other end. Well, I hope they're really appreciative of what I give them. I hope they're excited about what I give them. That's not that's my responsibility. My responsibility is to give, and to give with a cheerful heart. On the other end, the receiver, that's God's business. I'm just called to give. And Jesus has some sobering words to, you know, for the church. He says, to those unwilling to provide for those in need, in Matthew 25, they say, well, when did we see you, Jesus? And Jesus says, what you did for the least of these you did for me. Those that refuse will go away into eternal punishment. Ouch. Those are some sobering words right there. If we're not willing to give, and sometimes give to the least of these, offer hospitality in whatever form that takes, Jesus has some harsh, harsh words. The Apostle Paul, in other passages, he speaks to hospitality and he says it's actual gift. I know some people with the gift of hospitality. I think my wife has the gift of hospitality. And she loves to host. She loves to open her house for people. People, typically we know them, but we've had strangers over. But Peter again says, practice hospitality without grumbling. And again, I think the key word is grumbling. To do it with a grateful heart. The scripture reminds us that God loves a cheerful giver. It's one thing to give, but it's another to give with the right heart, right? I think one of the one of the disciplines that, that we can often lack is thankfulness. I think thankfulness. I, I bought a book recently and um, my wife actually laughed when I showed it to her. And it was called um, The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks. She must have thought I was a grumbler, which I can be. But thankfulness is really a, a, a learned and practiced discipline, right? And as we give, we're intended to be giving with a thankful heart. We're giving back to God because He's graciously given to us. So practice hospitality without grumbling is what Peter says. So the question for all of us is, well, how do we practice hospitality? What do we do? 
I think this is a start right here, right? Inviting people to church. Come on in. Not only will we worship, we'll have food and coffee afterwards. This is a form of hospitality right here. And we should be doing that with a, with a grateful and thankful heart. So the question I think we have is, what, what are some of the unique resources maybe God has given me? What has He placed me? What has He done? Where, what has He given me? And how can I begin to give that and bless others with what He's given me? Each of us has different resources, right? Different time and energy or different talents or gifts. And to be a steward and to use the time wisely, if we have limited time, if Jesus is indeed returning, the question is, what do we want to be found doing when He returns, right? What's it going to be? Are we going to be living like Jesus? Or are we going to be absorbed with ourselves? I think there are always opportunities to be blessing someone and to share the love of Jesus. And Peter reminds us, he says, if our, if our minds are not clear or alert, if we're not looking for opportunities, we'll miss them. If we're not focused on the things of God, if our minds are so clouded with the things of the world, we're going to miss an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with someone. We need to be alert, sober-minded, self-controlled. This passage today is an opportunity to, it should be motivating us to further action, right? Jesus says, I'm going to return like a thief in the night. It could be today, any moment. So the question is, how are we going to live with the time that we have left? I believe Jesus is coming back. I think it's going to be sooner than later. I believe that. And I think as God's people, we want to be found living open-handed with the blessings we've been given. And our final verses this morning, we've got verse 10 and 11. You know, Peter talks about a couple specific gifts in these last passage, in these last verses. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So the final point I want to bring out from our passage this morning is this, is that using your gift for God's glory is not optional. Using your gift for God's glory is not optional. Peter is saying that we each have a gift. He's not saying if you have a gift. Peter says use whatever gift you have for the glory of God. Use your God-given supernatural gifts, one, to bring glory to God's kingdom, but for the edification of God's people, right? For the benefit of the church body. Our gifts are intended to be used and practiced and done right here inside these walls. And then secondly, outside these walls, but primarily right here. So if our gift is teaching, teach. If it's serving, serve. If it's a word of exhortation, if it's hospitality, whatever it might be, Practice your gifts right here inside these walls. I was walking through the hallway this week, and, and I looked over, and I saw all your boxes that you guys have. So everybody has a mailbox, right, with their name attached to it to receive mail. It's really cool. Do I have a box? Anybody know? I don't know. Yeah, I've got to look. But in the hallway, every, nearly every name is attached to a committee or a team or a place to serve, Right? So this isn't new news for you guys, right? So everybody is to use whatever raw material, every gift they have for God's glory. 
I think in many ways it looks like you're doing already. But how cool, what an affirmation that, again, as Peter says, that use whatever gift you've been given to be faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In Romans 12, Paul gives us a list of some gifts. He says, if, he says speaking, serving, prophesying, teaching, encouraging, mercy, giving. Again, it's a, what, a, what a reminder for us that, that each of us have been given a gift. And again, what, it's a reminder to use your gift to serve others and to bring glory to God. Again, Peter doesn't say, if you have a gift, if you happen to stumble upon your gift, he says, you have a gift. Now use it. And I think verse 10, I think our final path, our final verse this morning is connects back to verse 7. Same thing, if I'm not alert, if I'm not sober-minded, if I'm not clear-minded, if I'm not self-controlled, I'm going to miss opportunities to use my gift. So be singular-focused, right? When we're focused on Jesus, God will provide the opportunities for us to use our gifts if we're alert. I believe for the, for the church to be the church, as God intends, each one of us is commanded to use our gift to serve others again. Each one of us, whether young or not so young, is to use what we have for God's glory with the time that we have left. If the end is near, if Jesus is returning tomorrow, may we use what we have for God's glory. You know, some of the questions I like to ask um, others, I kind of, love, I kind of enjoy the, the gift conversation or the strengths. And I think if you're unclear on your gifts, I think some great questions to ask yourself are, what gets me up in the morning? That's a great question to ask. What gets my heart racing? Yeah, coffee gets me up in the morning. My alarm clock gets me in the morning. What gets you up in the morning? You know, what gets your heart racing? You know, what is it that you're passionate about? There's something in here that gets your heart beating, and you're like, yeah. It could be music. It could be maybe it's writing. Maybe it's passing on an encouraging word. You know, maybe it is teaching. Whatever that is, there's something that gets you up in the morning. There's a great connection between our passions and our gifts. God is hard hardwired in each and every one of us something, some sort of gift that He wants you to use for His glory. And inside these walls right here. So if you've ever gotten up in the morning and doubted your purpose, maybe you've gotten your eyes off serving others, and maybe you've gotten your eyes on yourself. Serving gives us purpose, does it not? That's what it's all about. Getting up, loving God, loving our neighbor, and serving those that God brings into our lives. God made us, He designed us so that we would serve one another. We're made for community. We're made for relationship. We're made to give to others. If there's ever a time or opportunity where you, you wake up in the morning and you go, oh, what am I doing here again? That's a reminder for me that I've gotten my focus on me. Somehow I made it all about me. That's not what it's all about. That's not God's intention, right? Peter says, use whatever gift you've been given for God's purpose, for God's glory. The, the verse that the Lord has been laying on my heart lately, almost every day, 
Revelation 22.7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. I believe that Jesus is going to return sooner than later. As I discern, as I listen to the Holy Spirit, as He speaks, as I look at the evidence, as I read God's Word, I believe Jesus is going to return sooner than later. And the reality is that 2,000 years could pass before His return. But I don't think so. I think Jesus is returning sooner than later. And regardless of when that is, I believe that our response doesn't change, right? How do we live? What do we do with the time we've been given? How are we stewards with the time and the energy and the resources that we've been given? Should Jesus return tomorrow, what are we going to be found doing? I want to stand before Jesus. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So Peter wrote these words to God's people. He says, the end is near. That was 2,000 years ago, and here we are. But we're to live with great anticipation and urgency and expectancy that it could be any moment. What do we want to be found doing? You know, rather than, again, living with an eye towards what we haven't done, rather than allowing guilt or shame about our yesterday to grab our hearts, God's intention is that we live with an eye towards tomorrow, right? So as followers of Jesus, may we live with a single-minded purpose. May we live with kingdom living. Will we be alert? Will we watch? Will we be self-controlled? Will we look for ways to love God and others? May we be quick to forgive. May we love others in the same way that Jesus loves us, without condition. May we live open-handedly with God's blessings. May we give to others because we've been greatly blessed. May we serve others and bring glory to God with the gifts that He has given us. Again, as we wrap up, I believe our time is short. I believe one day and maybe possibly soon, I think Jesus is going to return. It's not for us to decide the circumstances of this life, but it's for us to live each moment that we have for Him. Amen? Amen. In just a minute, we're going to close with some, some worship, but I want to pray for us as we, as we close. Again, God, I just, uh, I just thank you for this opportunity. You've given us this moment right here. God, we are not going to worry about tomorrow. God, will we be stewards of the time and energy and resources you've given us, God? I believe that our time is short. Your word says that, that the end of all things is near. You tell us, and you say, Behold, I'm returning soon. And so, Lord, whether that's tomorrow or years from now, Lord, will we live with great anticipation, with urgency, with great expectancy, knowing that you may return. And so, Lord, may we be found doing your work when you return, God. As we stand before you, Lord, we desire to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, I ask not only for um, changed hearts and changed minds, God, but as we walk out these doors, we'll be changed people that we desire to apply your word in a mighty way. So, Lord, again, thank you for this day where we look for opportunities to bring glory to your kingdom and to love each other. 
Thank you for what your son Jesus did on the cross on our behalf, God. In the name of Jesus, amen.